Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Here again, God's word. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you were not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, let us hear this old lesson as you taught it first so long ago and as we need it for the living of these days. Amen. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that get pulled out of their context and used on their own. That last sentence I just read is one of those. We tend to use it all by itself. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Lovely. I've often said those words, sometimes as part of my welcome and greeting, especially if attendance is light. (laughs) Two or three of us are enough. Jesus wants to participate even when our number is few. I've said it as a reassurance. I've said it as a lighthearted way to diffuse awkwardness. And it is true. We do believe that no matter how many of us might be gathered, well, more than two or three this morning, Jesus is here too. The Spirit of our Lord is with us. But when we read that verse with the others around it, we see that it's both the comfort Jesus is here, and it's a challenge. Jesus is here, so we have to treat each other the way he teaches us. In fact, this part of Matthew's gospel comes in a series of lessons on how the church should live. In truth, it wasn't really the church as we know church at the time when these lessons were taught. The church is an organization with Structures and budgets and staff and bylaws and buildings wouldn't come for a good while yet. At its very beginning, the church was just a handful of people choosing to live the way Jesus was teaching them. And even then, even before there were pews filled with people and their differing opinions, that handful of early followers of Jesus already knew that it's often hard to live together as two or three or 12 or almost 1,700. Two or three will hurt each other. Two or three will be inclined to gather four or five to their cause. The conflict of two or three can break apart the well-being of many. Or two or three can choose to preserve the community. 
The lesson here in this text, straight from the mouth of our Lord, is about valuing community more than conflict, preserving community over being drawn into the tantalizing drama of conflict. Now, I don't know about any conflict brewing and threatening the well-being of our church community here today. Hallelujah! (laughs) But we, as a culture, we are swimming in conflict. We breathe it every day. It's the currency of the world. Conflict is even intentional, curated to keep us riled up and to motivate our actions. I made a mistake this week. I was scrolling on my phone, I admit, and in my news feed was a link to an article from the AJC. I check the AJC most days, sometimes online, sometimes unfolding the physical paper on the counter in our kitchen, which I prefer. But this was an online article that I hadn't yet seen that day, and the headline was only partially visible on my phone. Do you know what I mean? When you can see part of something on the window of your phone screen and it piques your interest. I actually took a beat and stared at this headline, trying to figure out what the rest of it must be and whether I wanted to open it and find out. I couldn't predict it, so I clicked the link. I read the article. It wasn't earth-shattering as an article, but when I got to the end, there on my phone screen were the comments. Thousands of comments, and I made the mistake of reading them. Now, if you don't usually read news or newsy things online, maybe you haven't experienced this phenomenon. Think of it as an internet sounding board. These spaces were created for people to comment, to share ideas, or ask questions, or tag others so they would see something of interest. But the comments section has become a phenomenon of consequence-free conflict. I'm sorry to say the comments I read didn't surprise me, but they made me really sad. Thousands of our fellow Georgians had also read that article online that day, and they were using that space to air their anger and vitriol. They were fighting, let's just name it for what it is, and they seemed to think it was very personal. They didn't just disagree with some premise in the article. They didn't just take positions on different sides of an issue. These short bites of text quickly turned into personal attacks directed by name at other commenters. These strangers wanted to tear each other apart. Now, that article wasn't a conflict in and of itself, but people came to it looking for a fight. They wanted a place to criticize. They could, of course, live in the world holding different opinions. We seem to have forgotten that differences do not have to equate to hate. They could acknowledge that they learned something, or they could hear how someone else read the piece, or at least they could say nothing. But instead, thousands of people on a random morning did what is so easy to do now. They tore each other down without any thought about the personhood of another commenter, without any care about the vitriol they were leaving out in the world. Now, I said a moment ago that I made a mistake this week. I know better. You and I both know one easy lesson here is don't read the comments. 
That's an easy way to avoid seeing this kind of conflict that builds and poisons a community, but it will still be there. And the more that kind of conflict stirring without accountability exists in the world, the more it moves out of the comments section and into our lives. There were no comment sections in the ancient world, but even before there was really a church as we know it, there were people hurting each other. Jesus knows with certainty that even faithful people will do wrong to each other. In the very first sentences of this scripture, he says, if another church member sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you've regained that one. The translation there of church member doesn't quite get to the deeper meaning. The original word means something closer to sibling, brother, or sister. For us, that means this is not just someone who's coincidentally chosen the same Presbyterian church as you. It's not just a name on the same role or someone you might see at fellowship hour. This lesson roots us in a deeper relationship, one that carries accountability and should have longevity. It's a relationship that matters both to the people who have hurt and been hurt, but also to the whole family. Anyone who has been in a family where some members are hurt and estranged from each other knows the impact one broken relationship has on all the others that extend out from it. So we might retranslate these sentences this way. If your brother hurts you, go talk to your brother. Heal that relationship. If your sister does something to separate you from the community, go sit down with her one-on-one -on -one with the hope that you can be reconciled. It changes our perspective when we think about conflict as a pain that hurts the family, and especially when we see one another's as siblings in Christ. It could be easy, especially in a church where there's some room to spread out, for church members to hurt and be hurt by each other and not have to address it. Here at Trinity, we could park on different sides of the building, go to different groups and classes, sit on opposite corners of the sanctuary. We could choose not to interact. And it's awfully easy to email our frustrations without talking to a soul. Worse, we can easily share hurtful comments about someone in a conversation in the parking lot or with our small group or Sunday school class or with the folks close to us in our parts of the sanctuary. Yes, you all sit in the same place every single week. <laughs> People could easily carry on without being healed and the hurt would grow and spread just a little bit more and just a little bit more making pockets within our community. But when it's your sister or your brother and you're coming to the same dinner table, you're walking up here together to receive the same meal of grace, you're making the same covenantal promises in baptism that we just made. You're singing the same words of praise and praying the same words of confession. It becomes a lot more important to heal that relationship for the good of the ones who've been hurt and for the good of the family.
This lesson from our Lord is the opposite of the anonymous mudslinging of a comment section, but it is also the opposite of the kind of creeping conflict that, frankly, churches are really good at. Jesus is straight up here. Don't talk to others. Don't gossip. Don't take polls with other people about whether they think you're right. If something has broken between you and another, it is your duty as siblings in this family to sit down and heal. And when you go into that conversation, you aren't going in with the intent to win. It isn't your goal to prove that you're right or to shame the other. Your hope is to regain your sibling in Christ. Your purpose is as much about the well-being of the other as it is about your position. Now, Jesus knew family systems and organizational theory before those were things, because he also knows that sometimes, sometimes, that faithful, humble, one-on-one won't heal the breach. So, he says, if you're not listened to, then take one or two others with you and try again. There are two essential things for us to learn in this part of this scripture. The first is, try again. Jesus does not let us off the hook easily when we're at odds with our siblings. He doesn't give us permission to write someone off or just switch seats. He tells us to go back, to make that healing such a priority that we would pursue our sibling in Christ. And the second lesson is about this gathering of two or three We could hear this as a justification to gather up our posse and go confront someone. You've hurt me, so my two besties and I demand an audience. But it isn't that. When Jesus says to take one or two others along, the goal of that group is not to gang up on someone or, again, to shame. It's to get at the truth. Taking others along is a protection against gossip and misunderstanding. Y'all remember the telephone game? Give me a nod. It would be really fun to play it across our pews sometime. (laughs) People line up and someone whispers a message to the person on the end, and then they turn and whisper it to their neighbor and so on down the line. And then the last person in the line says out loud what they think the original message was. 100% of the time, the message at the end is nothing like the message at the beginning. And it's comical. But it isn't comical when it's about one of our brothers or sisters. So Jesus says, take one or two others so that you can all hear the same thing. So that there's accountability about what has been said and what is true. One of the gifts we can give each other in this big family is the commitment to listen openly and to speak truth, not to build a posse, but to tend relationships. Unfortunately, there's still a chance that none of that will work. Hurts run deep. So there is a role for the whole church to play here. Not a shaming role, not putting anyone on trial, but a role in choosing the kind of culture we want to have. When I came here 16 months ago, Session and I started a process to identify values and priorities for our first two years together. And I gave the Session a survey and asked them to write what they think those needed to be. 
And one priority that many members of our session wrote, independent of each other, was that we are all responsible for our church culture. Not me, not Lucy or Andrew or Tom. All of us together have the responsibility to create a culture of listening and honesty and respect and love. We are accountable for how we speak to and about each other, how we communicate, how we welcome, whether we allow conflict to simmer, and when we are hurt or have hurt someone else, and that will happen. We are responsible for how we confess and forgive. We set a table for this family in God's name and make sure that this is not a place where mud is slung, if that's a word, or hurts are stored. Against the backdrop of a world obsessed with conflict, we can choose to value the love we share in this community more than the drama. That is what two or three gathered in Jesus' name can do. That is why our Lord said, where two or three of you get together, I'll be there. I'll uphold you for what is hard. I'll remind you what you should do. I'll guide you in how to be a community that preserves community. You might be thinking, come on, Rebecca, it's barbecue and bluegrass day. Can we talk about something besides conflict? It is barbecue and bluegrass day. It's a day when some of us are coming back or gearing up for a new season. We have visitors here with us this morning. Welcome, you all. And here's a moment when we're thinking about our church and how we will be part of it this year. There's a word in this scripture about that too, because Jesus wants us to gather. Where two or three are gathered, there is listening and the pursuit of truth. Where two or three are gathered, there's the chance to see each other, to confess and forgive and model a practice so rare in this world where everything else tells us to be quick to the fight and that we are justified in writing others off. We can commit ourselves this day to the power and hope we find when two or three gather in the Lord's name. We can be here to worship, to learn, to pray, to sing, to listen, to make those baptismal promises and to open our hands to grace. Trinity has always taken pride in being a community where there are still people who have different opinions and we still want to hear each other, right? Give me a nod if you think of this as part of our shared identity or just nod so that I feel better. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. There aren't many spaces like that left in our world, friends. Think about it. In most of the spheres of our lives, we self-segregate by worldview and politics, and it is easy to avoid people with whom we disagree. As a church, we can keep building a different culture, one that doesn't fan conflict but seeks actual understanding Two or three can be a backstop to gossip and meanness. Two or three can be a model of love. So come on back, friends. Let this be a family where we prioritize worshiping together, fellowship together, learning together, healing together. Let this place be the antidote to the comments sections of our time. 
And may we, as two or three or 12 or 1,700, carry a different practice when we go out from this place. When we encounter our bowed-up culture, may we hear the words of our Lord saying to us, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Where two or three are gathered, I will be with you. Amen.